The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 2, Part 4, Towards the People's Constitution. Scott Morrison was right when he said a government can never answer to a higher authority than the people of Australia. Of course, he said the right thing for all the wrong reasons and then recanted anyway, so his insincerity might tend to discredit his original proposition, although it really only discredits his motivation. But fundamentally, if the people of any nation are intent on establishing a genuine democracy, then the proposition that the people are the highest authority on the subject of the sovereign will should be irrefutable. Be that as it may, it is not possible to establish the people as the highest authority on the sovereign will if they are not enabled by their constitution to do anything other than give all that authority away, and specifically if they are not enabled to state what is permitted by their authority and what is not, what is desirable in their laws and what is essential for their well-being, security and future. They need two things to do that an open but well-organised public square, and a constitution which gives them the positive and negative force I spoke of in Chapter 1. They need a force which gives them at least equal power with those they elect, and much more than the corporations they do not. At first glance, this might seem like an impossible, unrealistic, impracticable, foolishly idealistic and naive suggestion. Doubtless, sceptics and cynics will respond with claims that anyone who might consider exploring it simply doesn't understand how politics works. But this is merely a blind, an illusion put about by the powerful to disguise the plain fact that politics itself doesn't work. If it did, the world, the West equally with the East, would not be in such dire straits. At this stage of history when the time to save our planet and species is short, understanding how politics works is far less important than understanding why it doesn't and then setting up improvements to our system of democracy to overcome the weaknesses of politics. There are myriad reasons why politics in Australia, at least, doesn't work, but chief among them is that it refuses to accord each voice some status. It refuses to capitalise on human diversity it refuses to act as a full democracy. A well-organised space on the internet can be assembled to enfranchise all those voices. In its infancy, of course, the internet is chaotic. It is also currently causing as much harm and division as it is advancement and inclusion. Thus far, the voices it has enabled clang around in a cacophony. The din is extraordinary. Little wonder that the few decent politicians left standing are unable to hear any of these voices, unless those voices have a lobbying past a Parliament House, much less discern a coherent will amid the confusion. But the reality is that it is not technically or procedurally difficult at all to arrange that space, keep access to it open, and to equip participants with skills and capacity to build a coherent voice. Through the centuries, 
since Athenian democracy first rose and fell, we have been unable to conceive of a system in which the many might speak as one and still retain a space for diversity in that voice. We have been confined to settling for a system that is a distant second best, a system where, in the absence of common ground, a political and often unsatisfactory compromise must be reached before we can solve even the easy problems. These compromises inevitably exclude someone from a legitimate recognition or equality. Sometimes, oftentimes, they exclude whole genders, whole races, whole underclasses, whole biological communities, whole future generations. This system of politics, a system in which failure is inherent, has pertained through the ages precisely because common ground is almost always absent when it is needed. At a national level, in a big country, it is mostly non-existent. If it turns up at all, it is nearly always too late. To make matters worse, politics is arranged these days so that vested interests work to ensure common ground never emerges unless they want it to. Of course, it is not only nefarious power plays that prevent us from finding common ground. The diversity of human beings ensures its absence just as surely as the venality of the powerful. Given that, it might be smart to stop looking for it and to extract ourselves from political systems which, after all, do nothing more than insist on exclusion, building in winners and losers. If we can arrange a system in which the many can speak as one and still retain a space for diversity, it could at least be supposed that we will have nothing to lose. This book will argue that this is now a practical possibility, and that in any case, it is an opportunity no sane society should discard before they try it. As I've already said, there has been a readiness for this among everyday Australians for at least 50 years. We have simply lacked the means to achieve it until now. We have not lacked the will. The will was boosted in 1975 when Australia's only constitutional crisis shocked everyone with the sacking of a Prime Minister by a Governor-General a Prime Minister who had not lost the confidence of the House of Representatives and who, by the will of the Australian people, had been elected to government only 18 months before. The crisis resulted in a wave of calls for a democratic constitution. Recognising that we don't have such a thing, eminent Australian historian Manning Clark wrote in 1977 that the Australian constitution was part of the powerful, dread, dead hand of the past. He predicted that Australians who want their own distinctive society, a society, he said, in which there is social justice and planning, would respond not by tinkering with the federal constitution, but by building an entirely new one themselves. He said, quote, What will probably happen will be that the people having come up against a brick wall and finding from bitter experience they cannot climb over that wall, will do the sensible thing and walk around it or face the other way and ignore it. The people will make changes in other walks of life. They will acquire or capture 
a voice in deciding the conditions under which they want to live in the schools, in the universities, in the workshop, in the factory, and on the sporting field. Manning Clark then went on to say, Australians have now created their own literature, their own schools of painting, their own music, their own drama. The time has now come for Australians to create their own political institutions. The time has come to end our period of political cringing and create institutions related to the spirit of the place, the past, and an independent present. Then the people might turn, he said, to deal with that anachronism of contemporary Australia, the federal constitution. This time they will not draft a British or a Yankee constitution. This time having at last liberated themselves from their own barbaric past, having shed the last vestiges of colonialism and provincialism, they will at long last have the faith in their power to make their own history. This time, the people will draft their own constitution. Unquote. In the ensuing decades, the will to do as Manning Clark imagined may have subsided but only temporarily. It has been sparked into life once again by a concentration of crises in climate change, massive biodiversity losses, social injustice, increasing inequality, the barbarity of racism and religious conflict, the failure of capitalism in its unregulated forms, the inhumanity of corporations and the military-industrial complex, and the vision of the retreat of democracy across the Western world. And with the onset of COVID-19, the will to transfer our governance onto a transparent ethical foundation, to reset the economy onto a sustainable footing and thereby reduce inequality, has blossomed once again. But this time it has blossomed because Manning Clark's brick wall has suddenly been understood as the limit of our existence, not a brick wall on which was painted the mere dead hand of the past, but a brick wall marking the limit of our future, the end of our story, or at least the end of our story as we might prefer it to be. This picture painted on the wall was one of the end of all our well-being and security. Having arrived at that wall, it might be reliably assumed that the will to live, the instinct to survive, will kick in, at least for enough of us, and that this will drive us to organise safe paths to a future, as Manning Clark might have said, by acquiring or capturing a voice in deciding the conditions under which we want to live. This is a new type of sovereign voice, an arrangement of power where instead of voting to establish a parliament that will decide for us, we decide for ourselves. We hand over power still, but this time with instructions about what it may be used for, to what end, and what the minimum obligations of elected parliaments will be to us, to we, the people. We set down the terms of trust that will govern a new relationship of mutually respectful obligation between the electors and the elected. This arrangement of power has not hitherto been possible, but it is now an entirely practical possibility. Almost 50 years on from the constitutional crisis of 1975, Australians are expressing not just a will to live, but a will to control how to live with well-being and fulfilment, 
since what is life worth otherwise? This is a display of a higher order demand for power, one that can rise above the limitations of the modern Hobbesian-style state. This level of demand has inevitably arisen over the last 120 years from the introduction of universal education, from the enlightenment that comes from free access to knowledge, and from a general awareness that none of our lives need be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish or short, and that science and human cooperation can now ensure that we can escape that fate. We need no longer be confined to it as we were in the past. We need no longer be driven, powerless, into the barbarity of the war of all against all. That said, it is logical that we will be confined to the barbarity of the past if we continue to rely on the barbarity of past systems of governance. This, in turn, implies the need for an entirely fresh start. Chapter 2, Part 5 Starting Again In supporting the call for a First Nations voice in the Constitution, Australians are signalling that they're looking for a way to start again, to shuffle off the past, including the guilt of the nation's founding. Starting again from an entirely new position about who should share power in our system of government, if it is to be truly democratic, is in reality the only way to go around the wall, the only sensible thing, as Manning Clark might have put it. To do otherwise is to deny life as the fundamental impulse and choose murder and suicide. It is to deny the community of humankind. For some, that new start is to put their faith in their God and distrust all earthly things like governments and people. Others might choose to put their faith in capitalism or whatever ideological prescription comes to hand. But history has shown that our future is what we make it. It is determined by us and is most reliably made to our liking when we specify the values by which it should be made. That is where any decent democratic constitution, a constitution for humankind, should logically start. Australia's constitution of 1901 started by, quote, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, unquote, a starting position that effectively ruled out the possibility and value of relying on each other. The architecture of the Constitution reinforced that exclusion and division by dispensing with the scale of human agency necessary to enable self-determination. That necessary scale can only be attained in a we-the-people Constitution. And since we have nothing like that sort of Constitution, the only way to get it is to start again. As Australians are likely to say yes to the invitation from First Nations to walk with them in a movement of the Australian people for a better future, there is perhaps no better time to build a constitution with an architecture capable of supporting the Australian people to design and take charge of that better future. Part two of this book offers a way for Australians to accept the invitation in the Uluru Statement from the Heart in such a way as to truly empower them and to ensure that all our children will flourish. <laughs> 